I first met uh, Dr. Carl Truman uh, as he was one of my examiners for my dissertation. And later, I was privileged to serve with him on the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary. Carl Truman is Paul Woolley Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary and a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And we're thankful that his congregation allowed him to be away today to serve uh, us by the preaching of the Word of God in both of our services morning and evening. Uh, Carl is a keen observer of current events in society and in the church. He's a prolific author. Uh, One of his books, The Creedal Imperative, is being widely read in this congregation. And the last I knew as of this morning, there were copies in the little bookstore. And I know you would benefit from reading that, that book. We honor the servant, but we praise the God who gives gifts to his ministers for the sake of the service of the church and the proclamation of the name of Christ. And I cannot tell you how um, delighted I am uh, to be able to share uh, this pulpit with my friend Carl Truman. And I know, Dr. Truman, that you will find an eager and attentive congregation. May the Lord bless your labors. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you all this morning. It's a, also a great pleasure to see David again. I wonder if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 5, and we will read from verses 21 to 43. It's on page 840, I think, of the church Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered them, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Praise God for his holy word. Let's ask him to bless the preaching and the hearing of his preached word. Lord God, you are a mighty and a transcendent God. Your foolishness is so exalted as to be infinitely higher than our greatest wisdom. And so, Lord, as we come before you this morning, and as we look to you for guidance, for rebuke, for encouragement, for a deeper knowledge of you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are acutely conscious that our finiteness, the sinful darkness of our minds, militate against us grasping your truth. And so, Lord, we would pray now that you would bless us, your Holy Spirit would take away the veil from our eyes, that we might see great and beautiful truths within your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's something of a a commonplace today, uh, even within certain sectors of the church, that the language of sin is no longer comprehensible to people. Uh, And if you watch the television, if you listen to the radio, probably you won't hear the language of sin being used very often. And if it is used, maybe it'll be used in a comic context. Or somebody will be be, using the term in a way of sending up or mocking religious believers. We live in a very relativist, relativistic world where language of sin is seen as somehow antiquated and no longer connecting and communicating with people. And that's a challenge to the church because, of course, the gospel is preached using language and we hope using language that strikes a chord with people, that draws their attention, that gets them interested in what we have to say. And I think it is true that the language of sin now is a somewhat antiquated form of discussing morality. There is, however, in society a language which still speaks and still connects, I think, with people. And that is the language of dirt. It may be that if you go to somebody and say, you know, that was a, that's a sinful politician. The person might laugh at you and think, well, that's a, that's a rather odd way of putting it. But if you go and say to somebody, you know, that guy's a dirty politician. People understand what you say, if you'd say to me, that, that woman has a dirty mouth. Everybody knows what that means. If you say, you know, that, that movie, that film I saw, man, I, I came out of that movie and it was a dirty movie. When I met that person, I oh, was so sleazy. I just felt dirty and I had to go home and have a shower. There are all kinds of uh, context in which we use the word dirt, the language of uncleanness, to express in many ways what perhaps 100, 150, maybe just 50 years ago, the language of sin would have represented quite adequately. And that's why this chapter in Mark, the whole of chapter 5, not just the half I've read, but the whole of chapter 5, I think is a very significant one for us today because it is, in some senses, the quintessential chapter of dirt in the Gospel of Mark. 
The first half is the story of a man with a demon. There are unclean demons, we're told. He's full of these unclean demons. He lives among the tombs, and as we shall see as we work through the passage I read uh, this morning, dead bodies are unclean. This man is unclean because he's full of unclean demons, and he lives among the tombs. That's an unclean place. He also lives in an area where, interestingly enough, for first century Palestine, the economy seems to be built on pig breeding. If you think about it, pig breeding, that's not something that one would typically do in Israel in order to make a lot of money. It implies that he's living in an area, really, of high Gentile population, probably, probably occupation. The forces of occupation are probably garrisoned in this territory, and they're unclean. And then as we come to the second half of this chapter, we encounter two more characters who are unclean, and in some ways, in their different ways, just as pitiable as the man we see in the first part. There is the woman with the flow of blood, and there is the little girl who has died. And it's on those two characters that I want to to focus this morning. The Gospel of Mark, of course, is often thought of as the simplest gospel. If you're chatting to an unbelieving friend and you want them to read something in the New Testament, quite often you say, read the Gospel of Mark. It's relatively short. It's certainly short. I'm not sure that it's simple. I think Mark actually weaves great uh, literary sophistication and theological sophistication into his Gospel, as we shall see. No word is wasted in the Gospel of Mark, and that's what makes one of the contrasts between the woman with the flow of blood and the little girl so interesting. We're not told the woman with the flow of blood's name. She's just the woman with the flow of blood. She's an anonymous person. We know the name of the little girl's father, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. And I think the reason why Mark has done that is For some time after this event had happened, for some time after Mark had written his gospel, people would have heard this story and they would have known who Jairus was. Ah, yes. My dad used to talk about Jairus. He was the guy who ran the synagogue when my dad was a boy. Yes, I remember Jairus. He was the guy who lived in that town. Didn't he have the daughter who was raised from the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ? Jairus is a somebody. Jairus is a man of stature within the community, and we know that because his name is recorded by Mark. Mark only records the names of people who will be known by other people who have stature or fame within the wider community. He doesn't record the woman's name because even if he knew it, even if his historical research had uncovered the woman's name, nobody else would know who she was. She's a nobody. So the first thing perhaps to note about this chapter before we get into the detail is it's a beautiful chapter showing the breadth of God's grace and concern. Christ is the one who ministers to the great and the good in society, the ones who are famous, the one whose names are known, and he's also the one who ministers to those that nobody has ever heard of. And yet, as we see in this passage... He will use the language of family and of daughter for both of these women. The one of no account, the one from the famous family. I want to spend a few moments reflecting upon the the problem, the situation that this woman 
with the flow of blood finds herself in. First of all, of course, there's a serious physical situation here. This woman has a physical ailment. It would no doubt involve a certain amount of physical suffering in and of itself. She's been physically worn away by this over many years. We're also told that some of her suffering has been exacerbated by her attempts to find a cure. If you look there, we're told she had suffered much under many physicians. As this woman had sought to find a cure for her ailment, as she had done the rounds of the doctors and physicians, she had found no cure for her illness, but in fact it had got a whole lot worse. My specialist historical area is really sort of 16th, 17th century studies. Uh, If ever you want to give yourself a sleepless night, it's worth reading a medical textbook produced in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, Sometimes students will say, you know, Professor, which which era of history would you most like to have lived in? And my answer is always, well, this one. You know, antibiotics, painkillers. There are some basic things that are really necessary If you lived at a time of pre-modern medicine, then doctors were really butchers in many ways. It was very hit and miss. And the treatment was as likely to make you worse, if not kill you, as the disease itself. So we're told this woman, not only has she suffered, but as she's desperately sought for a cure, she has been consumed physically by these physicians. And then, of course, we're told that she'd spent all that she had. Not only has she been physically consumed by this illness, she's been financially consumed by it as well. She has been reduced to a level of abject poverty by this illness that she has. It's consumed her physically. It's probably taken a huge toll on her psychologically, and it's consumed her financially as well. She has got worse and worse. Her money has gone and no improvement has been seen. But of course there is a worse aspect to her suffering even than that. And that is why uh, we had the passage from Leviticus 15 read earlier. If we're honest, I I don't know if you use these, read through the Bible in the year schemes, I, I use one myself. Usually when you hit Leviticus, your heart falls a little bit. It's God's Word. It's inspired, but it's not the most easily accessible of books. There's an awful lot of what, frankly, at first reading, even second or third reading, can seem quite weird and irrelevant to us today. But actually that passage is highly relevant for understanding the true depths of the problem that this woman faces. Leviticus makes it clear that when a woman is going through her monthly period, she is rendered unclean by that. Everything she touches is unclean. For the time of her monthly period, she is, in a sense, cut off from the community, one might say. This is a woman who, you know, one month her period starts, and it never ends. It goes on, and on, and on. How long does it go on for? Well, interestingly enough, we're told that she's had 
this discharge of blood for 12 years. She's been unclean for 12 years. For years it puzzled me as to why 12 years occurs twice in this passage. If you look down to verse 42, there's another reference to 12 years here. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. The little girl is 12 years old. Remember what I said about Mark? Mark doesn't waste words. The passage would make perfect sense if Mark said, immediately the girl got up and began walking. We'd just assume that the little girl was old enough to walk. It wouldn't be a weird or odd or illogical thing to say. But Mark puts in there that she's 12 years of age. Why does Mark add it? Well, once I passed the age of 40, it became easier to understand. If you're under the age of 40, 12 years passes like that, doesn't it? I met David just over 12 years ago. Seems like only yesterday. Time passes very, very quickly. I have to think that proportionally, if you could do a sort of proportional map of your life, it seems to me that I lived most of my life before I was 20. The years before I was 20 seemed to stretch out forever. And so much of who I became, the foundations were decisively laid in those first 20 years. I think as an older person reading this passage, we reread, well, I should be suffering for 12 years, and we move on quickly. Then at the end of this chapter, Mark throws in almost, it seems, almost as an afterthought. He reminds us that this little girl has lived 12 years. That's a whole lifetime. This little girl had lived for the full length of this older woman's suffering, and that's a reminder. This woman had suffered what for her would have been the equivalent of a lifetime. If you've ever had toothache, if you've ever had back pain, if you've ever had some illness which is physically very present to you all the time, the seconds are measured out one by one by one. Time drags when you're ill. This woman has been suffering for a lifetime. She would remember every moment of this agony. And not only that, she has been unclean for the equivalent of a lifetime. She has been outside, one might say, of civilized company for all this time. What does it mean that she's unclean? She can't touch anybody. And nobody will want to touch her. Maybe she was married. She won't have embraced her husband or made love to him for 12 years. He'll long since have gone one assumes. She can't touch anybody. It's like being a leper. I think in those moments in the Gospels where Jesus reaches out and touches lepers and heals them. We need to remember that's probably the first human touch those lepers have had since they contracted the disease. They'll have forgotten what it's like to be touched by another human being. This woman, you know, we use, I suppose we use the phrase very cheaply these days, dead man walking. Oh, they told me I lost my job at the end of the month, and for the rest of that month, I felt like a dead man walking at my place of employment. This woman really is a dead woman walking. She might as well be dead for all of the meaningful contact she can have with other human beings. She is outside of the community of God. Through no fault of her own, she is just 
unclean. That's the kind of nightmare this woman faces. She is physically consumed. She is financially consumed. She's getting worse, not better. And worse than that, she is completely cut off from human companionship and affection. And she hears, one day, she hears that this uh, preacher, this rabbi, has been working some great works. And she hears the reports, we're told, verse 27. And she comes up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And then we read that wonderful verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Something physical happens. As she touches Jesus, something changes. We're not told exactly what that was, but she knows the problem is gone. Just like that. More mysterious, of course, is Jesus' reaction. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, this is a point in the Gospel of Mark. The, Jesus is gaining in popularity. Uh, he's uh, already uh, somebody that the crowds are pressing around. He's already had to seek uh, solitude before uh, in the Gospel of Mark. People are pressing around him all the time. People are reaching out and touching him. Uh, if it's not sacrilegious to say it, he's a bit of a rock star. You imagine, you know, when rock stars make their ways from concerts, the crowds gather around and people are leaning out to try to touch them, get a little piece of the action. Jesus is being touched all the time. This woman touches him and he feels the power go out of him. Why? What's going on? Well, of course, if you read Leviticus, if you know your Old Testament, you know that this is very weird what's happening here. What should happen when a man touches a woman who's unclean like this? What happens? The uncleanness, we might say, flows out from the woman and infects the man. And the Old Testament is very clear. It doesn't uh, matter that the, you know, being able to... Well, it's a little bit like paying your taxes. You know, the fact that you didn't know you were meant to pay a particular tax doesn't mean you're not liable for it. If you go home, uh, let's say somebody's di- revolting sort of idea, but let's say somebody's died in your bed and you didn't know about it and they've just taken the body out and you go home and, and you jump straight in the bed because you're tired and somebody comes in and says, do you not know there was a dead body in that bed this morning? The sheets haven't been laundered yet. You'd be unclean. You wouldn't be able to plead, well, I didn't know there was a dead body there. You can't hold me responsible. No. The Old Testament is clear. Intention, knowledge... That's not what's important. It's the contact. This woman touches Jesus. What should happen? Jesus should become unclean. That's what should happen. No excuses. Jesus has been touched by somebody who's unclean. He should be unclean himself. But he isn't. The woman has been made clean. That's strange. That's a reversal of what should happen. That's why I think Jesus says, we're told that Jesus felt the power flow out of himself. He knows something strange has happened here. Other people are touching him, but they're clean. This woman touches him, and power flows out of him and makes her 
clean. What are we to make of this? Well, to go back to where I started, the language of dirtiness still works today. My wife, uh, I preached this sermon before and I was going out the door to, to preach it once before. My wife said to me, what are you preaching on this morning? And I said, the woman with the flow of blood. And she said, I wish you wouldn't preach on that. I just feel so unclean when you preach on that one. And I thought it was a perfect, she, she sort of enhanced my interest in the passage. Perfect illustration. Makes you feel kind of unclean, doesn't it? One of the lessons of this passage is you cannot make God unclean. You cannot make God unclean. Nobody is too unclean for God. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. And maybe what's holding you back is you've done something. You've done something really bad. You look into your heart and you know how unclean you are. And you just don't think you can reach out to God. Because you are too unclean. This passage contradicts that. There is nobody. Well, there is maybe one person in this passage more unclean than this this woman. We'll get to her in a couple of minutes. This woman is about as unclean as it gets. And she reaches out to Christ. And the power of God is such, the grace of God is such, that he is not made unclean, she is made clean. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning. Statistically, somebody in this congregation is probably going to look at internet pornography this week. As soon as you've done it, what are you going to do? You're going to feel unclean. And the devil's most plausible lie is going to be, you know, you've done it this time. You are too unclean even for God. And it's all over. This passage contradicts that. This woman is just about as unclean as it gets. And she reaches out and touches Christ. And instead of him being made unclean, she is made clean. How do you reach out and touch Christ today? I was thinking this morning of Job. The end of Job. The Lord comes to Job. And Job's response is, you know, my eyes have seen your glory. Except it's interesting, Job hasn't seen God. Job has heard God. For Job to hear God is to see him. This morning, as you hear God's word preached, as you sing his praises, as you hear God's word read, you see God. How do you touch God? By believing the word that you hear. You see God by hearing his word. You touch God by grasping Jesus Christ in his word by faith. Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer here this morning, the most important thing for you to do, for we are all unclean in ourselves before God, is to see God with your ears and to touch him by faith. As I say, though, this poor woman is not the only figure in this narrative. And one of the, the touching tragedies 
of this story, of course, is that this delay, this unknown woman causing this delay for the Lord Jesus Christ, this delay brings deliverance to her and it brings tragedy to the family of Jairus. What happens in Jairus' family? Well, we hear in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? The man who triggered the chain of events that led to the healing of this woman, Jairus, who'd come to Jesus and asked for Jesus to come to his house, in actual fact, now finds himself the father of a dead daughter. The man, if you like, we might say, who was a father and is now the man whose daughter has died. Jesus goes to the house, though. Uh, He says, he uses this enigmatic statement, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. I think Christ is talking metaphorically there. It is very clear that the child is dead. They would not have brought in the mourners to lament and wail if she were not dead. And then Jesus does something very interesting. He takes his inner circle, just a handful of his closest colleagues, and he goes in to this little girl's bedroom. And then he does something that, strictly speaking, he shouldn't have done. If you'd been with Jesus that day, and you'd have seen him reaching his hand out to touch this girl, you'd have been sorely tempted to grab his hand. Say, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. Why shouldn't you do that? Well... Numbers 19, don't look it up now, but you look it up later. Numbers 19 places very similar strictures on dead bodies to that which uh, Leviticus does on women during their monthly period. Dead bodies are unclean. If you touch them, you become unclean. If you lie on a sheet that a dead body is laying on, you become unclean. If Jesus reaches out and touches this little girl, guess what? He becomes unclean, ritually unclean. So it would have been a great temptation to tackle Christ at that point, grab him in a bear hug or something and say, don't do that. You're about to make yourself seriously unclean at this point. But he touches her and what happens? What happens? The girl rises from the dead. The girl is made clean. It's a beautiful example of many things, this particular moment. One, of course, is the sovereignty of God. There's a sense in which uh, the, the woman earlier, she reaches out to Christ and touches him. She's unclean, but she can still reach out to Christ and touch him. This girl is dead. She can't reach out to Christ and touch him. She doesn't need to be healed. She needs to be resurrected. Christ has to reach out to her and touch her. Secondly, as unclean as that earlier woman was, this woman is that much more unclean, this little girl. The great uncleanness, the last enemy, death itself, has her in its vice-like clutch. This This girl is as unclean as it comes. And yet Christ touches her And we might gloss the passage and say, I'm pretty sure power flowed out from him. 
and into this girl and rendered her clean. Is that not a beautiful uh, vignette, a little uh, picture in miniature of the gospel? What is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is God himself reaching out to that which is plunged into the ultimate uncleanness of death and making it clean. Mark, I think, is the great gospel of the Lord reaching out. It even happens in unexpected ways. Mark chapter 1, the heavens opened. Uh, Thankfully, the ESV changed the translation in later editions, so the heavens are torn open. And the Holy Spirit comes down. And it's important that we translate that as torn open for a number of reasons. But one of them is that Mark uses that same word at the end of the Gospel of Mark. When Mark is talking about the death of Christ on the cross. If you will turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Christ is dying on the cross. Mark chapter 15 verse 37 is the point at which Jesus dies. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So you get the picture. Jesus has died. Now if this was a movie, you know, the movie camera is focused on Christ dying on the cross. And then the next verse says this, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's why it's important to translate it as torn in chapter 1, by the way, because saying the, uh, the curtain of the temple was opened from top to bottom just doesn't really capture what's going on there. But the camera cuts away. It cuts away from Calvary to the temple. And the curtain is torn. And then the camera cuts straight back to Calvary again. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Think about that. This is a Roman centurion. I am 100% sure this guy's a Gentile. When does the mission to the Gentiles begin? I actually think, can we argue, it begins in Mark chapter 5, but it's certainly, it's underway here. Think of it. Jesus dies. The curtain is torn open. A Gentile is converted. We often think of the curtain tearing open as it's opening the way for us to get into the Holy of Holies in the temple. But I wonder if the curtain is torn because God is exploding out of the temple at that point. The first thing we see after the tearing of the temple curtain is what? An unclean Gentile is made clean. God's arm, if you like, bursts out of the temple and touches that Roman centurion and makes him clean. Brothers and sisters, what is the gospel for you this morning? Well, the bad news is that one day you will be grabbed by the ultimate uncleanness. Death itself will come knocking at your door. The kind of questions that we read Job asking in the book of Job, they can seem so remote, but sooner or later, Job's questions become our questions. Sooner or later, we face the final enemy of death. Sooner or later, we face the apparent meaninglessness of existence. Sooner or later... Uncleanness, the uncleanness of death will grab us. What is the gospel 
for you this morning. The gospel is this. Jesus has died. The curtain of the temple has been torn in two. And God has reached out through his Holy Spirit to touch you. Brothers and sisters, as you hear the word preached, you see God as the Holy Spirit works in your heart and enables you to trust that word. You touch God. And as you touch God and Christ, the final enemy will not hold you for all eternity. You will be resurrected and made clean. Praise God for the glorious words of his gospel.